This is season four of Flute Unscripted. Hi, I'm your host, Katie Massad, and I sit down with a new artist every week and share their stories with you. This podcast is brought to you by Flute Center of New York, the marketplace for flutes. Join us, subscribe, rate, and review us. Use this podcast promo code LISTEN for some special deals. Get $50 off any flute or accessory purchase of $4.99 or more and 10% off any sheet music order, including free shipping on all orders over Tabakin got his start in public school in Philadelphia, felt like a misfit studying flute at the Philadelphia Conservatory, and ultimately found his footing after picking up the tenor saxophone. Lou has come a long way and had a varied career since. He graduated, served in the Army from 1962 to 65, met his wife, jazz pianist Toshiko Akiyoshi, moved to California in the 1970s, and formed their big band that performed for decades. Lou also has some high-profile gigs. He was a member of the Dick Cavett Show Band and played with the Tonight Show Band. Nowadays, Lou enjoys playing with his trio around the world and stopped by the Flute Center just to scratch the surface on his fascinating life. Lou, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with me today. It's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'm really interested to learn a little bit about your origins with the flute. Um, Mm. You've said your family's not really was never really a musical family. Uh, How did you then get introduced to the flute and then go on to study at the Philadelphia Conservatory, which is now the the University of the Arts, which I went to Temple University in Philly, so I know that area pretty well, yeah. Well, it's a a kind of a tragic story, I hate to say. (laughs) I was like, I decided at a certain point it'd be nice to play an instrument. There were none in my family. So I go to the public school in Philadelphia and uh, I'd see if I could get an instrument. The only thing they had was a flute. I didn't know anything about it. Three people were trying to get it. And they chose the person who could get a sound out of the, you know, a head joint or whatever. So I, I got it. That's the good news. The bad news, they provided the worst possible teacher, a teacher from hell, <laughs> who didn't know, the teacher didn't know anything about the flute. So being ignorant, and you know, it's not a days where you have it research. You can you have an iPhone. You can right. check out a flute. Right. I was playing with a flute on my shoulder. Ooh, classic beginners. Yeah, mistake. and yeah. Uh, the only B flat I knew was a thumb B flat, and I didn't know anything, nothing about embouchure or anything. Mm-hmm. And this went on for a long time, and I don't know what I was getting out of it. There was a it was like junior high school. There was like a little kind of a quasi-orchestra or whatever it was. And that was it. And, you know, I, that, that was my beginning. It took years and years to overcome that. You weren't listening to jazz at any point during... I started to listen to jazz when I was around 15 because I had a neighbor, next-door neighbor, who was a little older than me, and I kind of admired him. You know, he was... You know, he had he had a little record collection and stuff, and he, I, I heard and I listened to some of the music, and and there were you know people trying to play flute, jazz flute, which mm-hmm. I don't know, it was something. And then when I was fifteen, 
I, I got a tenor saxophone. And then I was like, that was like the beginning mm -hmm. because all of a sudden music started to have some little meaning. I started to be able to hear things and I learned to play by trial and error, yeah. you know, and I could get a sound. I, I, first first day I had the tenor, I, I never forgot it. I had a con 10M tenor, if anyone is interested. Uh, number four, Brillhart rubber, hard rubber mouthpiece, and a two and a half symmetric cut reed. Now this, and I, and after about three or four hours, I had approximate sound that I w had in my head, which is which is interesting. I think that's important. No matter what instrument you play, if you have like a some kind of image, mm -hmm. of the sound that you want, you can get it somehow, even if you don't get it in the proper way, you can get it. Mm -hmm. A lot of players, young players, don't even have that. So they're practicing and nothing is happening. But anyway, that I became a, I was a tenor saxophone player. After a year, I was working. <laughs> I had gigs. I played summer summers in a strip club, and uh, uh, I made more money, money than my father made, who really mm. broke his ass working. You yeah. Know, like, so it it was cool and like then I you know I, I was still playing the flute not very well but I would play well enough to play in the orchestra. And what was the sound that was in your head? You said you have you know. I didn't have a sound in my head. Yeah. To, to be honest, I didn't. I I noodle around with a little quasi jazz flute, which is, and but I I, I wasn't interested. Finally, interesting thing happened at my last. My last uh, year or so, whatever it was, uh, Murray Panis sure. came into Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm -hmm. He replaced uh, James Pellerite, who I didn't particularly, I had a couple lessons with him, but nothing happened. But, so I go, I show up for my lesson with, with Murray, and I'm really bad. He, he's hearing this really bad flute playing. I can't imagine what he thought. And, <laughs> He was cool. He started from the beginning. What I should have done like 10 years before mm -hmm. or whatever. And he showed me the Overtone series. Mm -hmm. And he showed me uh, his concept of uh, kind of a relaxed jaw concept where the jaw, he was like a little bit in motion, kind of floating a little bit. And you know it was very the most basic stuff, and I work I worked on it. And after a few lessons, I started to get a sound that he was. He probably thought he was a great teacher, you know. Like, <laughs> but basically they they let they kind of I got out of school somehow. I they let me graduate. They, I mean they were tired of me I think, because I was really like I was a jazz saxophone player in a classical school. Yeah. And there was no need for me. I actually did give a couple lessons on the saxophone, hmm. you know, when they had a s student. So I, I graduated somehow. When I got out, I moved to New York, and I really worked hard. And I started listening to records. I mean, I, w I somehow I, I I wasn't enamored of the quote-unquote jazz flute thing because I did that on the tenor. Right, you're looking for something different. So Maybe. what? And what's the sense of playing the same notes and the same licks on yeah. the flute? It's right. a, creates an effect. The audience might think it's good, but it did, it seemed disingenuous. And and I started to listen to classical flute players. Actually, the first 
great flute player I heard was uh, William Kincaid Mm -hmm. when I was in Philadelphia. I I heard his farewell recital, which was amazing. And I never forgot, (laughs) he played the Hindemith, and the slow movement starts on the B, and he, he hit the note like about a quarter tone flat. And he just slid up to it like Johnny Hodges, <laughs> and like, and it was a kind of smile on his face, and um, but he, he his sound was so amazing. I mean, it was such a, a huge sound. I don't think anybody ever quite got that. I mean, it was was big and loud. I mean, you could hear it. It wasn't like nowadays everybody has a real penetrating low right, register. Right. His his was like round and almost like. Same intensity as a clarinet, I mean, yeah. in a sense. But anyway, that was my first. And then I have nothing to do but, I moved to New York, I had nothing to do but practice. And I would get these, I would listen to uh, uh, Julius Baker records. Ron Paul. Ron Paul, yeah. then later Ron Paul. And, and then the guy I really liked was uh, Tom Nyfinger. Mm-hmm. I used to buy these Nonsuch records. Uh, they were like contemporary music records, and he had little solos, some of the pieces, yeah. George Rock. You were mentioning you were just hanging out with Keith Underwood, right? He's another big Yeah, well, I, Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I was, the problem with me is I'm, I'm, I, I, I tend to try to do things on my own, mm-hmm. which is not the best way to do it. And, and one day uh, I did hang out with, with uh, Tom Knife. He went to his place. He, he had a, he had a, a platinum uh, it was a painter or a fowl with the gold gold keys, mm. and I played it. It was great, you know. And we kind of hung out. And he, I think he liked my playing, and uh, probably because I tried to sound a little bit like him, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, well, you mentioned that too that you, you've kind of um, emulated players before in styles of playing, but you see it as pointless. In the end, because you need to find your own voice. Well, no, right? I don't think it's pointless. No, I, 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 I think that I don't think you emulate them, but you, okay, I can relate to it easier on the saxophone. It's like uh, when I started out, I, I was, you know, I go through a certain process, and I wound up one time. I wound up in Coltrane world, mm-hmm. and I could do a credible Im- imitation. Mm-hmm. Then I realized it was kind of stupid because here I am, this, you know. This young white guy and trying to uh, be on the stage and kind of uh, recreate the feelings mm-hmm. of someone who's from another 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 world and it seemed like kind of dumb and I, every time I heard someone else do it I said I must sound just as dumb right, as they do right. so then I started to listen I, I, I did some investigation some older musician introduced me to the whole history, pretty much, of the tenor saxophone. And anyway, that's a long story. That's another class, but... That's for the, the point, saxophone the, podcast. Yeah, but <laughs> the, point, the point being is I listened to all these things just to get the aura of it and, right. and absorb the, like an osmosis kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, years and years later, you, you come, your style, your own style, and by the time you're 40... Your style emerges. Is there any way to rush that process? It just no. takes time, right? You just, can't rush it yeah. because, especially nowadays, maybe you could years ago when, when you played every night. Yeah. You know, played like 360 days a year and five-hour gigs, you know, mm-hmm. and like you could you could develop by the time you're 25 or 30. But nowadays, 
you don't have that luxury. It takes about 40, I, I notice, unless you're kind of a genius or whatever. But you, you do that. The flute thing was like, I just kept on listening to, to these players, and then when I was playing in a jazz, quote-unquote jazz situation, uh, I had a couple of bands that would write stuff for me, and I'd have a solo, and I wouldn't, I was not trying to play 2-5-1, you know. Yeah. I'd be trying to play like, uh, you know, Debussy or whatever. I'm mm -hmm. trying to, I, I was trying to get into that, trying to create another another world. And that's how it began. And then I got into, Tosco introduced me to, she wrote, wrote music with a, another narrative thing, like a Japanese narrative, and I tried to understand that. And I started to listen to some shakuhachi music and tried to get a feeling for uh, Japanese aesthetic, which is not very technical, but it deals with space, mm -hmm. space, and there's a certain rhythm in the space, and a certain, I don't know what it is, but I do it. <laughs> and, and so all, all these things, you know, happen, and I, I, I kept on trying to develop ways to express things that are very personal and always always involved in the sound. Mm -hmm. the sound is the most important thing on, on both instruments. If, if, if my sound is, is good on the flute, I can play. If it sucks, no matter how much I practice, I, I'm not going to execute. has taken the time to find his sound and it has paid off. He is known for his distinct voice on the saxophone and on the flute, both very different from one another. He has made a conscious effort to not just be a doubler, but proficient and expressive on both primary instruments. He has also gained respect in the flute community for his playing and some of the world's most revered classical players like Stefanos Skoldsen, Nico Duchamp, and Karl Heinz Schutz have become his biggest fans. find a lot of the classical flute players are really cool, you know, you know, I, I made, I developed friendships with, with a lot of them. I don't find a lot of, it, it's, it's a, it's a more supportive than the maybe saxophone players. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's definitely a community. That's yeah, for it's sure. like, you know, I run into, I run into, uh, Trevisani with the, ha hanging out with, uh, I'm hanging out with, uh, with Stefan yeah. Haskelson and yeah. And then uh, I, I meet Trevisani. He comes to my gigs in Milan. And uh, same thing with uh, Karl Heinz. He comes to my gigs in, in Vienna. You know, I, I try to convert them a little bit. I, I try to give, because <laughs> to them it's a mystery. Yeah. So I try to, you know, talk to them about it. And they, so Karl Heinz came to my gig in Vienna about a year ago and he stayed for two sets. He said, yeah, the first set I, I, it was difficult. Second set, I think I, I was getting the idea, <laughs> you know. It's like to break down barriers. How do you do that with an audience that might not be versed in, in jazz or, or music, for that matter? How do you really connect to your audience? You know, that's a great, uh, it's a great question, and I think it's an important question, and it's, 
the answer is a lot of times when I play nowadays, and I'm, I'm assuming that 90% of the audience doesn't know anything, at least not, maybe none of them know what, know or have experience. Art Blakey used to say, uh, uh, you have to be educated to appreciate jazz. What do you mean not educated? You have to listen. Hmm. It's like drinking wine, you have to pull a lot of corks, you know. So if you, pro if you approach performance with the idea that, well, the audience doesn't know the jokes, you know, in the jazz world, they're little yeah. Yeah. jokes that it's come all the out. Nuance, you know, yeah, like, yeah. It's like Sonny Rollins at the Village Vanguard. Yeah. You can't do that. But if you approach it as a Zen experience, like that, here we are, I'm to come one with the audience. And I'm going to, if I'm honest and don't do anything stupid, they might get it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the tendency is to just go for, you know, like obvious things, virtuosic kind of things. Yeah. They might be impressed, but that's the worst way to go. Yeah. That's that's something that it's hard to, but you try to keep that down. Like especially musicians are not the best audiences. No, no. Because if if it, you know they try and they listen in parts. Yeah, we're dissecting and analyzing and judging uh, a little yeah, bit exactly. too. Yeah, so exactly. If it's too good, they get yeah. pissed off. If it's bad, they hate it. You know, right. or they should. You know, yeah. and, but they don't get the message right. and they don't get the whole story. Mm -hmm. Where did we go, man? We really. I know. We really. We started out on. <laughs> that's why I told you about the timing situation. One thing leads to another, and then we're just off in another and then world. You go, that's what's yeah. like playing. It that's is the same thing. Uh, you are really known, though, for having such distinct voices on, on the the flute and the sax. Um, do you have any advice for, you know, sax players when they're picking up a flute and when they're doubling, and vice versa? Do you have any advice for classical flutists that might be intimidated by jazz? Because okay. you're, you know, okay. you have the Okay. Well, for the first one, you know, I, I don't try. Don't treat if you're playing the flute or. Don't try to think of it as a double. That's the first thing. Think of it as two primary instruments. Mm -hmm. So then you can, you don't feel like it's not like a stepchild or, you know, <laughs> it's like that's the difficult part and it's the frustrating part because it drives me nuts because yeah. I know what I want to I want to do. I know I have an idea of what I want to, how I want to play the flute more so than the tenor. But the tenor is always like, the thing that stands in the way, <laughs> but you, you have you have to like say I'm not a doubler. I I play two instruments. Mm -hmm. Doubler is like well you get by you play a little clarinet you play a little right. flute and I did a little of that stuff to survive. But the point being that's the first thing, and then when you play the saxophone, especially like I do, I play very hard. I play a very hard setup, and it's really rough on on the mm -hmm. chops. So. When you pick up the flute after the saxophone and it's not where it sh should be, the first thing is not to panic. Because if you panic, you're dead. So you have to like accept your imperfection. You know, you don't really accept it, but you deal with it. Yeah, move and on. Feeling that maybe in about a minute it'll it will come together. Sure. You lose. Another point is that when you play the saxophone, you'll or whatever, you, you will like. You'll lo you'll lose like a certain percentage. Like if I'm playing the saxophone and the flute on the same gig, mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm going to lose a little bit. So the thing is to 
to build up your sound so that when you lose 20 percent it's it's still pretty good yeah and a lot of times we have microphones to deal with that help and you know if you're playing in front of a drummer and a bass player piano whatever you, you know you you wear yourself out if you don't have a microphone it's, it gets to be pretty hard unless you have a magnificent sounding room mm-hmm. i had the problem the other day here i i just freaked out like uh sound was dead and had nothing and I remember doing a, a auditing a Ron Paul master class and he was really pissed off he said the, the night where was this when in the 70s and where in, in Los Angeles oh, okay and he did a concert I forgot what hall it was and he was really bugged at himself he said you know the acoustics were not good yeah and, it's, and instead of accepting it I tried too hard to, to make it happen, mm-hmm. and I had a, it was terrible. Yeah, it happened to me the other day, and like, I, I you know, I have to to learn to not to realize it's not going to be the way you want it to be, and not try too hard. So that's a that's a I learned. That's good. That was, yeah, that's great advice for everyone. And, and the same yeah. problem happens at um, gigs, competitions, auditions, where the space is not what yeah. you are expecting or it surprises you. So is it, you try not to compensate, right? That's the you whole just, point. Yeah. I should learn that lesson. I, I haven't quite absorbed, <laughs> I haven't quite gotten it, but I, I keep on striving. So that was the f- part about the, the, the quote unquote doubling reality. And the other question was about uh, classical flutists. Yeah, because I thought it was interesting that you, you're friends with a lot of classical flutists and you say they're always a little fascinated with, with well, your well, side of things. And I think it is um, mysterious to a lot of classical flutists and we're, we're always interested. Well, the first thing I tell scared. them is like, because I had a student who was, uh, uh, she was, she studied with Joyce Baker at Juilliard and, you know, in, in the day. Had a lovely sound, of course. If you mm-hmm. study with Joyce Baker, you're going to wind up with a lovely sound. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't think he really teaches or just listen to him right. play. Yeah. That's what I hear. <laughs> and so she, she said, I want to play jazz. I said, look, don't think about that. Because when, Classical players try to play jazz. It really sounds stupid, you know. And even when jazz, quote unquote, jazz flute players play jazz, a lot of times it's mm-hmm. stupid. It's just think about okay, here's a song you want. To, you pick a song. Uh, when you say something sounds stupid, do you mean because it's not very authentic? It's kind of it like just you're, sounds you're like it, it sounds corny. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have that. I don't know. It's just what's my opinion. Yeah. It's my my. From I come from another background because I'm when I think about jazz, I th- you know, I, you know, I think about a certain aesthetic, mm-hmm. and the flute is like there's been some great, I mean, like Frank West is a yeah. quintessential jazz flutist because he played with instrumental integrity and, and everything, and then Hubert Laws is a great flute player, but generally speaking, you know, it's you know, it's just more a lot of, more of effect than substance. Right. So, as far as the classical players, like I told her, you know, just think of you. You pick a song you want, and we we go over the harmony, and then you create another another melody, another variation on the theme, mm-hmm. so to speak, and utilize your sound, utilize, you know, what you learn from Julius Baker and what you, and then he winds up stealing my, you know, I play for him and. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he steals my stuff. But, <laughs> but to just try to, you know, not be jazzy, so to speak. Mm-hmm. 
and you know, so I and I hang out a lot with Stefan Hoskelson and I became really good friends. Might be my in a way my best friend, even though he's in Chicago now. Uh, we get together and play, and and I, I, you know, I got him to improvise, and he really. You know, we actually did two gigs. <laughs> That's funny. Down in the village, I had almost my birthday. And I told the guy, I'll do whatever I want on my birthday. I don't, it might have been Smalls or, mm. I think it was Smalls or Mezzer, one of their kind of connected. So Stefan and I worked on some stuff, and it was great. We practiced, and it sounded so great to play next to a flute player with the same kind of intensity that I, I heard. Yeah. And I could get inspired. And then I would show him, you tell him what to do. I said, just create a line and follow the form. You have to follow the form. You right. study the form, but uh, create a line. Like, you play all this stuff. And he really did really great. In fact, once when he got so into it, he played an extra chorus, you know. <laughs> and, and everybody really, you know, everybody could appreciate it, you know. And utilize, he utilized what he had. Yeah. I said, don't try to play that. You know, Nico will try to play a jazzy, you know, because he's a French guy. Mm -hmm. I said, don't do that. <laughs> but, but Stefan, you know, and, you know, it was, and he'd be really nervous. Like I said, Stefan, you're playing this little joint, and you're nervous, and you play right, all you've these. Played but, on some of the biggest stages yeah, in the world. Yeah, biggest but, solos, yeah. But when you're out of your element, yeah. you know, like when you're out That's of, like I can play feel. in a big stage. Like, you know, I used to play in Carnegie Hall once a month, and played in Symphony Hall in Chicago, all the mm -hmm. all the halls. But I'm playing what I play. Yeah. Basically, so it's it's not intimidating. If I had to play, if I had to play a box sonata, I'd be intimidated. I'd be <laughs> right. I'd be scared to death, you know. And like, so that's so that's basically the, the reality. But sure. I, I, you know, like I I try to just say like, just play, you know, just come up with a little phrase when you're warming. People warm up, they play stuff, right? Yeah, they play a. Maybe they play some quote of a piece, but you just play like three or four notes, and I think it's a question and answer thing. I do that in the saxophone a lot. I I, I use that as a okay. You play a phrase, you answer the phrase, you connect all the phrases. Mm -hmm. The point is, if you just play a phrase, and then the next phrase has nothing to do with what you played, it's it's not happening. Great players like you know classic Sonny Rollins. It's 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 a comp a compositional technique. Uh, you're dealing with, you're dealing with um, motifs. You're dealing with uh, uh, intensity levels. Build, you know, creating different intensity levels and stuff. And s same thing if you're playing, if you're improvising. You know, you come up with a little melody and you answer it, and then you, then you get this sumie, you know, like painting, like Japanese painting where there's no break. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. So it doesn't have to. Oh, that's that's basically it. And then. And then you get into the, you know, you start thinking about telling the story, you know, what we're talking about earlier. Right. And then you get into it. And it can't hurt the classical playing. I think it can give you some insights. Stefan displayed the, the Mozart D. I went to Chicago for his last performance of it. And he, he, he wrote his own cadenzas. Mm -hmm. It's pretty impressive. Actually, the cadenzas were kind of the highlight. He really... Did, did great. I mean, he created uh, 
very musical, but, but also you have to have a lot of show-off stuff. You have to yeah, play a lot yeah. of uh, impressive technical stuff, which he did. It was really great. So in the old days, I, they were supposedly improviser cadenters. Yes, yeah. That's what they said, but they, there's a story about Liszt saying, I have to go home and practice my improvisations. <laughs> But I mean, but it, it, that's cool, you know. Yeah. It's, it's not going to be exactly. And I remember Ron Powell saying that he plays, you know, Mozart, and he he, he said I should play my own cadenzas, but I st I start out thinking I'm going to do it, and then I chicken out at the end, go back to Gobert or whatever, and like so. That's 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 you know interesting. In the old days, classical players improvised, they figured bass and all this stuff. Right, so nothing to be scared of anymore. No, but yeah. now everybody's so intense, I you know. know. Like it's like a, it's like being a gymnast. Yeah, you know? Lou, it's been really insightful. <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, we can do the book. Yeah. You're very good. Thank you. You Lou. wrote the questions yourself. Yes, I did. <laughs> all my research on my own. <laughs> it's easy when you have someone very fascinating like yourself. Anyway. Well, thank you again for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Masterclass at the Flute Center, we got to witness firsthand the conversational approach Lou has to music making and the dialogue between himself and other players. For Lou, it seems like jazz and improv is a mindset, and this legend's approach has certainly carried him far. Lou wants to share what he has learned over the years with the Jazz Foundation of America, an organization that he is on the advisory committee for that aids jazz and blues musicians in need. You can check out Lou's projects and albums on his website, loutobacon.com. Tobacco. The songs in this episode are Speak Low, Yellow is Mellow, and Afternoon in Paris. This has been an episode of Flute Unscripted. This podcast is sponsored by the Flute Center of New York. Visit our website at flutesforsale.com for the largest selection of new and pre-owned instruments. Remember to use this podcast promo code LISTEN for discounts on flutes and sheet music. Special thanks to our owner Phil Unger, the Flute Center team, and Stefan Huskoldsen for our theme music.